Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you all for coming. Uh, for those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Today's event is IWP's fifth annual student symposium. Four graduates from our 2019 class will be presenting research papers from their studies here. Our first presenter is Mr. Eric Kismalian, who will be presenting on the geopolitics of quadrilateral security dialogue, maritime theory, or practice. Eric Kismalian is an MA candidate in statecraft and national security affairs at the Institute of World Politics, graduating this May. Eric is a senior fellow at the Eurasian Research and Analysis Institute and his research primarily focuses on U.S. national security and foreign policy. Eric, the stage is yours. Thanks very much for the introduction. Um, hello all, thank you so much for being here today. So as mentioned today, I will speak about the quadrilateral security dialogue. Uh, can everyone hear me? Quadrilateral security dialogue, which is an informal uh, maritime partnership between the United States, Australia, Japan, and India. But before I get to my presentation, let me start with this. Uh, as most of you know, China's rise is one of the most crucial geopolitical events of our times. With its burgeoning economic and military capabilities, China seeks to challenge the U.S. in multiple domains. Apart from consolidating its land borders, China is building a powerful navy which is believed to become a two-ocean navy in the near future. To borrow Professor Toshi Yoshihara's words, China's entry into the global commons is a permanent phenomenon. As such, the Indo-Pacific is increasingly becoming the most important region for the United States. Other regional maritime powers too, most critically Japan, India and Australia, are trying to adjust to this new reality by assessing their respective foreign policy options. In fact, these four maritime democracies, uh, as I mentioned, have, more, have formed what's known as the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, or the Quad, with a purpose to defend the regional status quo and the rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific. Although these countries shared the same democratic values, they differ in terms of strategic culture and geopolitical priorities. That's why Quad is having such a hard time turning into a full-fledged coalition. So I'll try to define what Quad really is and what the future holds for this maritime partnership. With that being said, so um, before I delve into the original process of initiating Quad 1.0, it is absolutely necessary that we go back to 2004 when a massive earthquake originating in Sumatra, Indonesia, basically devastated the Indian Ocean region basin. It hit uh, Thailand, Sri Lanka, obviously Indonesia, uh, India, and reached all the way to Horn of Africa. Close to 100,000 people were killed, and it was soon recorded to be the deadliest tsunami ever uh, recorded. The United States, Australia, India, and Japan got together for the humanitarian purpose. In fact, 
These four countries demonstrated an impeccable uh, for humanitarian effort. The U.S. alone contributed $350 million, and in just a few days, these four nations mobilized close to 40,000 troops. So if you take a look at this map, this is where you can see the epicenter of the earthquake, and it spread all the way to Horn of Africa. So this was one of the signs that this region, in many cases, should be seen as an integrated, one single region. Uh, on the right side, this is before and after the tsunami, which was absolutely devastating. And to be frank, this humanitarian effort would be incredibly hard without American airlift. So basically in this picture, Seahawk helicopters, they would take off from aircraft carriers, deliver the food, the aid, and basically fly back again. Uh, so this uh, group of four maritime nations became known as the Tsunami Corps Group. However, from the get-go, they let know that once these objectives were met, they would self-disband. And actually, that's exactly what happened. And in 2004, uh, 2005, they announced about this in Indonesia, Jakarta. So, Quad 1.0, the confluence of the two seats. Uh, it was not until 2007 when Japan's Prime Minister, Shizu Abe, appeared before the members of the Indian Parliament, where he uh, basically claimed that Indian and Pacific Oceans are in the active state and for of formation, basically turning into a one coherent region. He also hoped that this bilateral relation between India and United States, this maritime partnership, will evolve to include Australia <coughs> and United States for the purpose of what he called to form a security diamond. It is also absolutely necessary to look at the Japanese diplomatic blue book of 2007, where they articulated the concept of the arc of freedom and prosperity, uh, which basically stated that uh, Tokyo very much values American security alliance and would also continue engaging strategically with India and Australia. So quadrilateral security dialogue is the brainchild of Japanese foreign policy. With this being said, these four countries got together for maritime consultation and for the first time these countries participated in one of the largest naval exercises known as Malabar Exercise, which historically has been held between the United States and India only. However, in 2007, this, uh, it was, was the first time that these four democracies uh, exercised together. And I think Singapore also dispatched a, a small naval force. However, it should come as no surprise that China was quick to react. Basically, it interpreted these naval exercises, the security consultation, as an anti-China coalition. And to prevent these countries from forming an uh, anti-China security bloc, uh, they issued a di diplomatic demarche to all participating uh, states. Uh, in 2008, consequently, Australia withdrew from the quadrilateral security dialogue, the incoming government of Kevin Rudd, uh, the Labour government basically pulled out of the security alignment, it suspended the sale of uranium to India. But before this happened, uh, Japan also found itself in a domestic uh, turmoil, uh, which led to the abrupt resignation of Prime Minister Abe, who was the primary champion of this quadrilateral security dialogue. But this being said, uh, this alignment fell apart, basically. And also here in the US, President Bush's administra administration was departing, so there was really no time to focus on saving this uh, arrangement. So, uh, before I get to Quad 2.0, let me briefly talk about some of the foreign policy nuances of Australia and India. Uh, let's start with Australia. As you know, Australia is a key strategic American ally and, in fact, a very loyal one. However, there are many scholars in Australia that uh, pretty much raise the possibility that in coming years, Australia will face a massive geopolitical dilemma. They cannot avoid the fact that China is the other 800-pound gorilla in the room, 
Uh, China is Australia's largest economic partner and also the largest export partner. And in fact, uh, whether it is true or not, many Australians believe that the reason they handled the 2008 financial crisis relatively well was because of Chinese investments. So with this being said, um, uh, a prominent scholar in Australia, uh, uh, Hugh White, he happens to be a very uh, pro-Western uh, scholar and he authored the 2006 Australia's Defence White Paper. So he basically lays out the three primary foreign policy objectives and concerns that Australia will face. First of all, Canberra unquestionably wants to prevent China from gaining regional hegemony. Uh, however, Australians also fear that the strategic competition between uh, China and Japan will turn into a, a cutthroat uh, rivalry. And of course, uh, it, it is primary concern for Australia that the relations between China and the United States will deteriorate, a process which has already begun, basically, and some have labeled this competition as the new Cold War. So according to Professor YT, who teaches at the Australian National University, Australians will have to pick a side. This is something they're really trying to avoid. Um, this being said, I would like to also raise some of the questions about the Chinese political influence campaigns in uh, Australia. Uh, this is basically done through Chinese billionaires who are associated with the Communist Party, the most prominent among them being Wang Jianguo, who just recently his residency was revoked in Australia because it basically bankrolled all political parties. So this is a major concern in Australia. The good news is that um, Australians are waking up to this. There is also the case of one of the prominent members of Labour government. I think in 2017 he uh, sent Dastiari. Uh, he had to resign because he explicitly sided with China over South China Sea claims. Later it was disclosed that he had been taking money from Chinese companies. Uh, many uh, critics also raise the threat coming from the so-called corporate fifth column. So basically what they're saying is that the business elite in Australia, a fraction of it, has been compromised by China. So the Chinese pressure the business elite on Australia, and the business elite in turn pressures the political elite to enact more pro-Chinese foreign policy. This being said, many also have raised the possibility that uh, in coming years, neutrality will be the most viable option uh, for Australia. In my opinion, it is a bit uh, too premature to jump into this conclusion. Till today, the United States and Australia maintain a deep strategic connection. In fact, uh, both nations are reopening the naval base of, uh, pinpointed in, the man, uh, in, in, the man, in Manus Island. So there is much strategic alignment uh, between Australia and United States. Going back to Kevin Rudd's decision, who was often accused of killing Quad 1.0, many of his critics even called him the Manchurian candidate and uh, basically accused him of appeasing China. He was forced to write an article last March that was published in one of Japanese outlets he basically justified his decision from the perspective of Australian national interests, claiming that Australia should not compromise its bilateral relations with China because of India and Japan, who, according to him, have very toxic relations with China. So this was his reasoning behind uh, withdrawing Australia from quadrilateral security dialogue. All right, a couple of words about India. I titled this chapter The Cautious Realist. So going back for a few decades back, Indians have really tried to reach some sort of rapprochement with uh, China. In 1977, for instance, uh, a high-profile delegation left for Beijing to initiate talks to sort of ease the tensions between the two nations, including the Indian Prime Minister, foreign, prime, uh, uh, foreign minister. Once they came back, two years later, China invaded Vietnam, therefore derailing the whole negotiations. In 2009, uh, the Chinese bluntly questioned India's sovereignty over Arunachal Pradesh, 
which is a very sensitive topic for the Indians. Also, there was an intelligence report in 2010 claiming that uh, China had, a, uh, had troops in Kashmir region. And more recently, I'm pretty sure most of you remember, there was the Doklam standoff in 2017 along the border with Bhutan. So all India's attempts to sort of uh, start negotiations with China and establish some sort of rapprochement have failed thus far. So what's the logic? Why does India want to in, uh, engage with uh, China? The primary reason is to avoid a two-front war. They know they have Pakistan, which is breathing right on their neck, and for them to have another hot front uh, the border with China is a national nightmare. However, uh, when the right time is, Indians do not hesitate uh, to call China out. But in the meantime, they're very careful not to provoke China too much. So a couple of words about Narendra Modi, who was elected in 2014. He's the head of the Bharatiya Janata Party and the current prime minister. When he was elected, many here in the US and India believed that the relations between the two countries would deteriorate. Part of the reason being that the US government continuously rejected Modi's visa to come to the United States because they believed that Modi had a hand in the pogroms of 2012 in Gujarat. However, when he got elected, he claimed that the United States and India were uh, natural allies. President Obama invited him to Washington, and the relations have really got, uh, gotten better thus far. But uh, the actual credit uh, should go to President Bush and his admin administration, because they were the ones who practically opened India to the United States. A more interesting development is, however, India-Japan relations. Although these countries go way back to centuries, in the past few years, India and Japan have taken this bilateral relationship to a whole new strategic level. This is almost a semi-alliance. Um, and there is a new form of bromance going between Prime Minister Abe and uh, Prime Minister Modi. Some of the uh, uh, indicators of this growing relationship. Well, first of all, they have almost the same level of threat perception vis-a-vis -vis China. Uh, called this Entente. This is basically an Entente between Japan and India. In 2014, Prime Minister Abe received India's highest diplomatic honor, Chief Guest of Republic Day. There is an impeccable cooperation in defense, security, and space realms, and Japan became a permanent member of Malabar exercise in 2015. As you remember, it was only a bilateral naval exercise between the US and India. And of course, the 2016 nuclear deal between India and Japan, which enabled Indian, uh, I mean, uh, Japanese companies to build nuclear plants across India. So this is a very important region, uh, bilateral relations. All right, so this is the most interesting part. India and Australia developing relationship, and part of the reason that Quad is having such a hard time. So, to be long story short, this is very much in its embryonic state, this relationship. There is historically been lack of significant strategic and economic engagement between Australia and India. Policymakers in India basically don't see Australia as a strategic asset, and in some cases they see Australia as the replica of America's foreign policy. Therefore, they think engaging with Australia could be redundant. Uh, Australians, in their turn, uh, see India as this country who makes big statements, but it takes them forever to execute a single policy. Therefore, they don't see India as a reliable partner. Uh, in 2013, Australian um, Indian Defence Minister visited Australia, and this is where there was some sort of an icebreaker going on. So that was a good relationship. As I mentioned, there is a strategic mismatch between New Delhi and Canberra. If for Australia, uh, China's physical aggression is a possibility, if for India, this is very much a reality. 
And since 2008, India has constantly been rejecting Australia's participation uh, in Malabar exercise. Last year, too, Modi explicitly rejected Australia's quest. Uh, in my opinion, for two primary reasons. Uh, a, uh, again, not provoke China too much because China sees this quadrilateral security dialogue as inherently anti-Chinese. But on the other hand, I think this was a diplomatic message to Australia, basically reminding them of quitting the Quad in 2008 and saying that uh, Malabar is reserved for strategic countries that matter uh, to us. However, um, not everything is depressing um, between these two nations. There has been some engagement recently. Uh, for instance, in the beginning of 2015, uh, India agreed, finally, to uh, conduct some sort of naval exercise with, uh, with Australia, and it's called OZINDEX, Australia-India exercise. You can see the picture over here. Um, and it, it is expected that this year Australia will dispatch close to 2,000 uh, troops to exercise with their Indian counterparts. Also, in 2017, uh, the Australian defense paper elevated India to a uh, first order importance country. This is another positive development. However, I just want to briefly talk about Australia's second sea concept. So for Australia, Indian Ocean has, has been a, a, a second importance. Australians didn't really much focus on Indian Ocean. For them, is the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific coastline. Why? If you take a look at this map, this is where their population is concentrated. This is where all of their major cities are, Canberra, Brisbane, uh, Sydney. And the uh, United States, Australia's closest security ally, is a Pacific nation. So Australians have constantly been looking towards the United States. And uh, of course, historically speaking, Australia did not really have to worry about its western frontier because of British, later American sea power. So the uh, Brits and Americans basically took care of the western frontier. Until the late 1980s, Australia did not have a single warship stationed in, um, uh, in the western frontier, in, in the Indian Ocean. Will this change in coming years? I think so. Uh, Australia is poised to become the largest LNG exporter. So this means if they want to export their gas, their natural gas to Southeast Asian market, they have to focus on Indian Ocean a bit much. But for now, Pacific coastline, Pacific Ocean dominates their strategic thinking. And here is another mismatch between India and Australia when it comes to prioritizing their strategic theaters. All right, Quad 2.0, resurrection. Um, arguably brought back to life by the United States of America, going back to 2017, then Secretary of State Rex uh, Tillerson met with uh, Modi, praised India for being such a great democracy and uh, praised India for sharing the strategic interest in Indo-Pacific, keeping the ceilings of communications open, etc., etc. And uh, there, was the, there was much engagement during this uh, meeting. Uh, after his speech, Foreign Minister of Japan, uh, Taro Kano, announced that he would reach out to the governments of Australia, India and United States to sort of continue these consultations. And that's exactly what happened uh, in the framework of the 31st ASEAN Summit in 2017. The representatives of these four democracies met again. And President Trump, during his uh, trip to Vietnam as part of the APEC CEO Summit, declared his uh, uh, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Moreover, the national security strategy of the United States of 2017, there's a tiny portion there where it emphasized the strategic importance of maritime democracies of Australia, Japan, and India. Ever since, several important factors have taken place, uh, most notably the rise in the dialogue in India. Here in this picture, you can see the heads of all navies basically talking about the future plans. 
and it was just incredible to watch the amount of cautiousness Indians and Australians demonstrated not to pronounce the word China. Uh, Japan and United States had no problem with that, but there is much cautiousness in Australia and India to not identify China explicitly. So now that Quad is around and it has brought back, uh, what's the current status? To be frank, there is much skepticism of whether this will turn into a full-fledged coalition, and India seems to be the most hesitant right now. First of all, the one thing to know about India, they're very slow to act. They're very hesitant to do anything drastic. They engage with Quad, then they meet with leaders in China and Russia, so India has its foot in all camps. Um, and this basically takes me to, and they also remember Australia's withdrawal of 2008, so there's a, kind of a mistrust going on. That leads me to my second point, strategic autonomy. This is a very cherished concept in India. They pretty much like having several uh, foreign policy options, which was basically mentioned again during rising a dialogue uh, in 2019. The head of their navy said that the permanent alliances for them are too constraining. And uh, this point, uh, again, was once again reiterated by Prime Minister uh, Modi in 2018 as part of the Shangri-La dialogue. Uh, he pretty much said that Indo-Pacific cannot be dominated by a single coalition and India will work with everyone. So and the Quad countries took this as a message that India basically pushed Quad to second plan. Uh, again, another problem with Quad is the ASEAN centrality. ASEAN remains the sacred cow of the Indo-Pacific. There was no official endorsement for quadrilateral security dialogue because uh, countries consisting ASEAN believed that Quad was created to replace their security alignment. And uh, as I mentioned, two other uh, uh, reasons that still linger around is the strategic gap between Australia, India, and also their cautiousness not to push China too much. So this is my last slide. Um, moving forward from American perspective. So if there is one country that, in my opinion, the United States should really work to maintain its security alliance is Japan. And I'm one of those who believes that Japan is the most important American ally as of now. Why? Uh, Japan has a navy that twice is as big than the British navy. If you combine British and French navies, uh, Japan will still have a bigger navy, which is absolutely crucial for the U.S. to maintain the balance of power in the Pacific. Let's not forget that the U.S. has 50,000 troops in Japan, and it's home to the only forward-deployed American aircraft carrier strike group. Japan is an economic and uh, technological superpower. Uh, encouraging Indian engagement with Japan. I think the U.S. should really welcome this development. These two countries have the capacity to keep China in back, uh, at bay in times of uh, regional crisis, let's say. So this is a really important development that the U.S. should support. Uh, when it comes to Australia and India relationship, I think the U.S. should position itself basically as a middleman. When engaging with India, Australia should basically brought in on trilateral uh, format. Uh, another interesting point is to reassure the ASEAN countries that uh, the quadrilateral security dialogue is not really there to replace their security alignment. Basically, this could be done through quad plus format, in inviting countries uh, part of the ASEAN, naval exercises, think tank discussions, all kinds of policy forums, just to make sure that quad is not there to challenge the status quo. And with this being said, what is Quad really? There isn't a definition for Quad. So based on my region, uh, uh, on my research, this is my definition, I guess, for Quad. So Quad will be the product of Chinese behavior. It's, it is basically a diplomatic message to China. If China somehow behaves, Quad will sit there as a loose coalition and collect dust. There will not be any major alignment, and this will not turn into a full-fledged quadrilateral alliance. 
However, if China does something incredibly reckless, invasion or more aggression in South China Sea, I think this coalition has the capacity to come together and basically contain China from four corners. With this being said, I'll uh, conclude my presentation. Thanks very much. If there are any questions, happy to answer. Thank you. So I think what China is trying to do when it comes to Quad, it's really trying to disrupt alliances as opposed to creating its own alliance networks. It really tries to disrupt alliances. So whether through economic espionage or economic statecraft or basically uh, trap that, it really tries to uh, create a divergence between countries that align, have aligned with the United States historically. But for now, I don't see, I would probably say uh, ASEAN sees itself as a competitor to Quad. There was, that's why part of the reason there was no official endorsement from Quad, because they, uh, from ASEAN, they viewed Quad as a competitor. So, but I cannot think of any other coalition that basically competes with Quad. So, and this is sort of an exclusive coalition consisting of only maritime, I mean, democracies, basically, so. Yes, sir. Uh, the Philippine Islands have been an American ally for over a century. They seem to be outside looking in, or are there the yeah. doors locked to them? Uh, what's yeah, the potential for the Philippines in this uh, Sure. So let me go back to 2012, and I think this was a mistake on President Obama's uh, administration. There was a brief naval standoff between China and uh, Philippines. And basically, the U.S. Uh, didn't do anything. There wasn't even a rhetorical strong uh, condemnation. And it kind of sent a bad signal to the Philippines. All we had to do is just deploy two destroyers to the region, and uh, all questions would be solved. But there wasn't any response. And uh, the Philippines really remembered this. Uh, the, and the current uh, president of the Philippines really cannot, uh, no one understands what he's up to. He's closing up to the Chinese again. Then he. Uh, there is, I think there is a dichotomy between the defense apparatus in Philippines and the civilian. The civilians are very much looking towards China, but the defense uh, apparatus, the defense bureaucracy is resisting this divergence. So it just remains to be seen. It, much of it depends on the U.S. to reach out to the Philippines again. But the 2012 incident left a really bad mark, in my opinion. We have time for one more question. All right, thanks very much. <laughs>